Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we are going to cover the reign of the third Abbasid Caliph, Al-Mahdi. His father, Al-Mansur, was always going to be a tough act to follow, but at least the incomparable leader left him the caliphate in a golden age of prosperity. He could thus launch into his new role under ideal conditions. His armies were strong and loyal, his people cowed and compliant, and his treasuries full. He had everything he needed to take the Ummah in whatever direction he pleased. Episode 48 Al-Mahdi I can hardly believe that we're done with the epic reign of Al-Mansur. Over five extra-long episodes, six if you count the one in which he triumphed over his rivals, we covered his 20-plus years on the throne, how he stabilized the caliphate by centralizing power in his hands, and in doing so, forever altered the ummah and the world. We're only done with him in a limited, factual sense. In many ways, his influence will endure certainly during the golden age he created, and most definitely throughout the reign of his son, Al-Mahdi. It might be difficult to stand out in history succeeding such a legendary figure, but Al-Mahdi had the benefit of inheriting his father's thriving caliphate, so I'd say the pros outweighed the cons. It's been so long since we've introduced a new caliph that I don't feel I'm being repetitive trotting out that old line about how we will start where we always do with a brief account of what our next caliph was up to before getting the top job. Al-Mahdi was born in 744 or 45, just a couple years before the Abbasid revolution kicked off in earnest. He must have been about five when his uncle Al-Saffah became caliph, and around ten when his father ascended to the throne. He first comes up prominently in our sources five years later, when we're told that Al-Mansur sent him east to topple the renegade governor of Khurasan, Abdul Jabbar. After defeating Abdul Jabbar, Al-Mahdi was ordered by the caliph to begin the invasion of Tabaristan. This signaled to me that his army had been barely inconvenienced by its campaign against Khurasan, so when it comes to how Abdul Jabbar was defeated, I prefer narrations which say his own armies in Maru turned against him after they realized his intentions of going against the caliphate. Anyway, Al-Mahdi began the invasion of Tabaristan by 760, then he set up court in Rai at the very western edge of Khurasan, again under orders from Al-Mansur. From then on, he became the vice-regent of the east, though I should hasten to add that this was in name only. His father was very hands-on when it came to administration, and Al-Mahdi had little say in who was appointed or dismissed in the lands he was nominally in charge of. Our sources even attribute a quote to Al-Mansur which corroborates this. In it, he boasted that Muawiyah had relied on Ziyad to support his power in the east, and Abdul Madik had relied upon Al-Hajjaj, but that he needed no one but himself. Despite its gubernatorial impotence, the position did make Al-Mahdi an important figure in the east as it connected him to all its most powerful leaders. He also seems to have been an amiable, open-handed youth with a love for music, hunting, and entertaining, 
all of which no doubt helped more than it hurt. There isn't a lot of material on his time in the Rai, but what little we do have comes across as light-hearted, endearing almost. He spent most of his time there, even after al-Mansur had a mansion built for him just outside the city of peace. Al-Mahdi did visit the capital every now and again, especially on occasions when his father had to leave it for whatever reason, like when al-Mansur decided to lead the pilgrimage in 775. That trip would prove to be his last, and the caliph passed away of some stomach disease shortly before arriving to the holy city of Mecca. We find a few contradictory narrations about this event, but they don't disagree on anything consequential, just some salacious bits of clan drama which may or may not have happened. Al-Mansur's Hajib al-Rabi'a bin Yunus took pledges for the next caliph from those attending the pilgrimage, and a messenger was swiftly dispatched to the round city to inform al-Mahdi himself. Express mail from Mecca to Baghdad took 13 days back then, and we find more pointless controversy surrounding al-Mahdi's reaction, again, barely worth commenting on. Events like a caliph's death and succession were prime targets for fanciful tales. These were memorable occasions for the ummah, and to them, all sorts of stories could be attached. Most common is the one about a royal will being read by the new caliph, in which his predecessor passes on some sage advice. Al-Mahdi has one of those. It's long and doesn't deserve our full attention, but I will note that in it Al-Mansur comes off like a saint and Al-Mahdi as the dutiful son, deeply moved by his father's humanity and eager to live up to his example. I think it's a spurious narration, but worth noting because its depiction of Al-Mahdi as pious and reverential closely resembles how he will come to be remembered in our sources. His title, Al-Mahdi, translates as the guided or the redeemer. Though we should keep in mind that it wasn't retrospectively applied to him, rather it was chosen by his father, most likely as the result of a political calculation. Still though, the name may have had some influence on how he saw himself, or, more likely, how authors writing about him over a century later came to see him. Before we get started with Al-Mahdi's reign, let me tell you a bit about this episode's structure. When I first set out to write it, I took a chronological approach, going year by year through his time in charge. I found myself categorizing events under three main headlines, and referring them back to each grew a little cumbersome by the end. So instead of doing that, I thought it'd be best if we discuss each of these themes at length and cover most of Al-Mahdi's reign that way. The first was his complete lack of interest in actual governance, and his reliance on others to take care of business on his behalf. The second has to do with his personal life, family, and succession plans. The third was his reputation for waging victorious wars against the Byzantines, who were the Caliphate's only true rivals at that point in time. You'll see how the themes are not exactly independent because they somewhat bleed into one another, and when we're done talking about them, we'll assemble the three together with a short chronology before drawing our conclusions about Al-Mahdi's time in charge. The very first thing Al-Mahdi did after he became caliph was issue a kind of mass amnesty for those still languishing in his father's dungeons. Most prisoners were released, among them many of his Hashemite kin, and he only made exceptions of men deemed especially dangerous. 
Furthermore, he made generous gifts to those he freed, clothing them in fine garments and giving them thousands of dirhams each. Finally, he returned great sums of money which his father had seized from various members of the Ummah. He couched none of these moves as a departure from al-Mansur's ways, which is a little confusing since they were quite literally reversals. He declared instead that his father had simply held their money in his treasury for safekeeping and generally presented his actions as a fulfillment of al-Mansur's legacy. There's a narration about this that says al-Mahdi's wazir, or counselor, Abu Abaydullah, chastised him for his irresponsible handling of the treasury, telling him that his father had left it full and that he was emptying it with little consideration for how to fill it again. We come across reports that say al-Mansur had left over 600 million silver dirhams and tens of millions of gold dinars in his treasury when he died, an incredible sum that I'm sure seemed inexhaustible to the new caliph. In response to Abu Ubaidullah's warning, al-Mahdi simply said that the man just had to show a little more faith, and by simply giving an order, 10 million dirhams flowed into his coffers within three days. There's no reason to believe this story. I only mention it because it contrasts al-Mahdi's handling of the Ummah's finances to his father's and touches upon his reliance on advisors, our first theme for the day. Our sources name three men who were especially influential during al-Mahdi's reign, and there's one more confidant they don't name, but we have good reason to suspect this person nonetheless played a central, if hidden, part in al-Mahdi's administration. We'll leave our mystery advisor for last, and begin with the three who take up most of this space in our sources. The first was Al-Rabi'ah bin Yunus, Al-Mansur's Hajib, who took pledges for Al-Mahdi in Mecca, then continued in his role upon returning to the round city. It seems like the wise and kindly Rabi'ah was just another instrument of royalty, bequeathed by one caliph to the next. Al-Mahdi's second advisor was the one he had had back in Rai, a man named Abu Ubaidullah. Al-Mansur had personally assigned him to Al-Mahdi when he first sent his son east all those years ago. What little we know about Abu Ubaidullah makes him out as a virtuous and generous man. One story says that he used his own wealth to feed 5,000 people in the capital every day. A few years later, when one of his servants suggested he scale down his charity due to rising food prices, he admonished the man for his small-mindedness and ordered him to double the daily quantity instead. What a class act. The last of these three was Yaqub ibn Dawood. His father had been ascribed to the last Umayyad governor of Khurasan, the beloved Nasr ibn Sayyar. Yaqub grew up to become a Hashemite partisan and was eventually arrested during al-Mansur's days for supporting the rebellion of Ibrahim, brother of Muhammad the pure soul in Basra. The mass amnesty issued by al-Mahdi released him from prison and within a couple years we find him frequenting the royal court and getting close to the caliph. The only explanation we find in our sources for his meteoric rise is that he earned al-Mahdi's trust by alerting him to Hashemite plans for breaking out Ibrahim's son Hassan from prison. It's a little weird that this betrayal of his old loyalties is what made Yaqub seem trustworthy to al-Mahdi, but there you have it. Yaqub's influence grew so great that we find many bitter complaints about his undue power in our narrations, like other courtiers acerbically referring to him as the real caliph, for example. Anyway, now that we've introduced our three advisors, the stage is set for their conflict. The Hajib al-Rabiyah stayed out of it for the most part, 
something he could do because his position had other responsibilities besides governance and policy advice. We thus won't have much to say about him. The friction was mostly between Abu Ubaidullah and Yaqub. Abu Ubaidullah had a good head start. After all, he'd been with the caliph for over 15 years. He had plenty of experience working for al-Mahdi and surely realized how indifferent he was when it came to administration, preferring to fill his time with entertainment like music and hunting instead. Al-Mahdi trusted the capable Abu Ubaidullah and delegated most affairs to him, which led to some jealousy between the wazir and others close to al-Mahdi. This was manageable back in Rai, but we're told that Abu Ubaidullah was increasingly outnumbered after al-Mahdi became caliph, probably due to the sheer size of his new retinue. Recognizing the sway the caliph's servants had on him, he assigned four learned men he trusted to stay with al-Mahdi whenever he had duties to attend to elsewhere, just to make sure the caliph was never left alone with those who harbored power-hungry ambitions. But Abu Ubaidullah could only hold on to his special relationship with the caliph for so long, and by 778 the two had a major falling out. While Yaqub ibn Dawood doesn't feature in the story of Abu Ubaidullah's downfall, it is probably no mere coincidence that it took place at the peak of Yaqub's own influence over the caliph. Many narrations in our sources describe how al-Mahdi was deeply concerned with religious orthodoxy and was particularly disturbed by those who held syncretic positions, fusing the Islamic with pre-existing religions and traditions. He saw them as hypocrites for professing to belong to the Ummah, and the label Zindiq, a Persian loanword meaning heretic, was applied to anyone who did not conform to the conventional Arab definitions of the faith. Why am I telling you this? Well, in 778, al-Mahdi got a tip that Abu Ubaidullah's own son was a Zindiq, and the caliph had him summoned to court to see for himself. The most extreme narration we find says that after the man failed al-Mahdi's test, the old advisor was ordered to decapitate his own son. Abu Ubaidullah took up the sword but faltered before bringing down the blade. Al-Mahdi accepted his apology and had his son killed outside instead, then ordered the newly bereaved father to get back to work, reading him his mail. It's a brutal dramatization, and while other narrations offer softer versions of this, they agree that al-Mahdi had Abu Ubaidullah's son killed for his lack of fluency in reciting revelation. Abu Ubaidullah did remain in al-Mahdi's service for a while longer, not as an advisor or private secretary, however, and when he was forced out six years later in 784, he was only in charge of the postal service. So that's the rise and fall of one advisor in a nutshell. Time for the next. It took Yaqub ibn Dawood a couple years to make himself an intimate of the caliph, and his fall from grace was even more sudden than his climb. Like I said, we don't have very much on how he rose to power, but descriptions of him in our sources are all pretty positive, except for the bitter ones about how he was a power-hungry manipulator, that is. It seems clear that his closeness to al-Mahdi irritated many at court, and rumors swirled about how he had the caliph wrapped around his little finger. But those didn't lead to his dismissal. Instead, another malicious rumor, about how Yaqub had a special preference for a cousin of the caliph named Ishaq ibn al-Fadl, unexpectedly led to his downfall. We're told that one day the caliph asked Yaqub whom he should assign as next governor of Egypt, and Yaqub, oblivious to these rumors, 
heartily recommended Ishaq, unintentionally confirming al-Mahdi's suspicions. He was thrown into jail in 783, where he remained for the rest of the caliph's reign. While this synopsis might make Yaqub seem like an unremarkable footnote in history, that's really not the case. He practically ran the caliphate for those seven or eight years he had the caliph's ear. Now that we've covered all three of al-Mahdi's administrators, we can move on to the secret fourth and our next theme. The reason our sources don't have anything to say about this mystery advisor was because it's a woman, and women are practically excluded from Arab, nay human, history. Al-Yaqubi and Al-Tabari would never deign to comment on narrations about one of the caliph's wives, whom they probably regarded as belonging to the man's personal sphere, and thus to be beyond public discourse. The amusing Al-Mas'udi, however, had no such calms, and stuff like this was right up his alley. His history is anyway more of a collection of diverting tales, and so unlike our other two sources, it does contain mentions of Al-Khayzuran and her influence over Al-Mahdi. So let us introduce this exceptional woman. The following largely comes from outside our main sources. Al-Khayzuran belonged to Al-Mahdi's harem, and some narrations insist that she was originally gifted to him by his father, who bought the Yemeni girl from a slave trader after getting a premonition that she would bear noble sons. While all very foreshadowy, this is unlikely for several reasons. Most obvious of which is that Al-Mansur had already wed Al-Mahdi to his cousin Raita, daughter of the first caliph Al-Saffah, and would have most likely been looking forward to their offspring continuing the dynasty instead of the child of some skinny courtesan. I say skinny because Al-Khayzuran's name means reed in Arabic, and our sources seem to agree that it was in reference to her slender figure. In any case, Al-Khayzuran quickly became Al-Mahdi's favorite concubine, and she bore him a daughter and two sons while they were still in Rai. Al-Mahdi didn't have any real power when he was in Rai, so maybe that's why we don't come across any hints of Al-Khayzuran's influence over him back then, besides the fact that we don't have much material on that period to begin with, I mean. This changed immediately after he became caliph, however, and within his first year he may have divorced Raita and elevated Khayzuran from concubine to wife. A small minority of sources say this divorce was a real headache due to Raita's prominence as daughter of the first Abbasid caliph, and they claim the judge ordered al-Mahdi to pay her so much alimony that it led the caliph to decree that none of his successors should ever marry noble Arabs again. While this is a pretty obvious fabrication, it does underscore a new reality. Al-Khayzuran's rise ushered in the age of the concubine like never before. In Umayyad times, it was unthinkable for a caliph to have a mother who didn't belong to the tribal aristocracy, and worthy candidates like Maslama ibn Abdul Malik were overlooked for the job entirely despite their obvious merit. This was no longer the case. From here on out, the caliph could just do whatever he pleased, a result of the extent al-Mansur had centralized power in the caliph's hands, not an expensive royal divorce. But let's get back to our power couple, because Al-Khayzuran's promotion to favorite wife was just step one. The very next year, Al-Mahdi sought his own succession shakeup, and he offered his father's nephew, Isa ibn Musa, 10 million dirhams to relinquish his claim. 
If that sum sounds familiar, it's because we heard the same rumors during Al-Mansur's succession planning. I believe they were misattributed back then. It makes more sense to me that the prodigal Al-Mahdi would try to spend his way out of such a predicament. There's less drama this time around, and it sounds like Isa took the money and used it to build himself a sizable estate outside of Kufa, where he lived out his days in peace. Al-Mahdi thus installed his eldest son from Al-Khizran, Musa, whom we'll be referring to by his eventual title, Al-Hadi, as next in line. There's disagreement on Al-Hadi's birth year, but he was most probably just 13 years old when he was made his father's successor, exceedingly young by Arab standards, another hint at the unfettered power the caliph now wielded. Our sources do not remark on the astounding fact that Al-Mahdi's son from the noble Raita was overlooked, but again, they shied away from commenting on all the caliph's family affairs, so perhaps it's not so surprising after all. The preference shown to Al-Khayzuran and her children are among the few examples we can point to in support of claims of her power over the caliph. Her influence during Al-Mahdi's reign is obscured quite effectively in our sources, and we are left to piece it together ourselves. Al-Mas'udi has some stories about how one of the caliph's favorite poets fell in love with a handmaid of Al-Khayzuran's, meaning that she was usually present at court. We also hear about supplicants going to her to beg for some favor or other, a strong clue that she held sway over matters of administration. Finally, when Al-Mansur's governor of Yemen passed away, Al-Khayzuran convinced her husband to appoint her own brother in charge of the province. These were all stark deviations from precedent. Wives of caliphs had until then been kept far away from any and all aspects of rule. Or at least, that's what our sources say. Maybe they just hide the role of women too effectively for us to be able to see their true contributions to the Ummah's history. But even if that's the case, Al-Khayzuran somehow still managed to break through this deliberate silence. Now for our third theme, Al-Mahdi's wars against the Byzantines. This one isn't as long or prominent as the other two, but it's worth commenting on because his fight against them seems to be the only part of his responsibility as caliph that he took an active interest in. A few years into al-Mahdi's reign, the Byzantines won a string of victories, culminating in their sacking of the garrison city of Hadath, modern-day Adata in southeastern Turkey. Al-Mahdi wasted no time rebuilding it, and some claim he even tried to rename it after himself, though if that's true, it didn't really stick. After another disappointing year or two of military defeats, the caliph went a step further. He left al-Hadi in charge of Baghdad and personally led a campaign against the Byzantines, taking with him his youngest son from al-Khayzuran, Harun. Al-Mahdi's invasion of Anatolia doesn't seem to have been a huge success, and although it was likely repulsed by the Byzantines on the battlefield, it is remembered positively in our sources. They are happy to gloss over the lack of results to swoon at how brave, dutiful, and reverent Al-Mahdi was for taking on the infidel empire like that. I briefly mentioned how our sources have a tendency to sanctify the caliph before, and I'll have more to say on that soon. For now, just keep in mind that his wars against the enemies of the faith provide us with a clear display of their hagiographical bent. Even though al-Mahdi couldn't deliver on the battlefield in 780, his son outdid him soon after. In 782, Harun led an army over 90,000 strong, 
the biggest one fielded by the Ummah against the Byzantines yet. He took with him a couple military advisors, one of which was the Caliph's Hajib al-Rabi'a bin Yunus. The commanders all had an easy time reaching the forts defending the border, and before too long Harun had reached the Bosporus right across from Constantinople itself. The plan couldn't have been to take the capital, as there had been no Arab naval preparations beforehand. But it was a show of force, meant to remind the Byzantines of the Ummah's military might. After the defection of one of their highest-ranking Armenian generals, the Empress had no recourse but to accept a truce which stipulated she pay great sums of tribute to the Caliphate every year. The renegade general was awarded with the governorship of Armenia, and Harun rode back home with literal tons of gold and other fine treasures like silk, cattle, and war gear to boot. We're told that after this glorious victory, his father made Harun his brother's successor and bestowed upon him the regnal title, Ar-Rashid. So that's it for our three themes. But before we stitch everything together in a short chronology, I want to say a little more about Al-Mahdi's reputation for piety. Quite a few elements get cast in a religious light, and it's worth highlighting both what they were and why they were seen like that. Al-Mahdi's mass amnesty at the start of his reign went a long way towards healing the rift between the Abbasids and other Hashemites. Not only did it directly free and compensate many of his clansmen, but by gaining Yaqub ibn Dawood as an advisor, the caliph ended up with an ex-Hashemite partisan directing his administration. None of Yaqub's many appointments went to men who would inflame tensions. They were instead quite conciliatory and very successful at bringing moderate outcasts into the fold. Yaqub brought not only the Hashemites closer to the state, but also the people of Medina, giving al-Mahdi the sheen of a pious leader who did more to unite the faith than previous caliphs. Another thing was the way he used all the money left in his father's treasuries. In 778, al-Mahdi led the Hajj, and were told that when he saw the holy shrine of Mecca, the Kaaba, in a state of disrepair, he ordered the removal of the many rags draping the cubic structure, and had a worthy garment woven for it as a covering instead. A fun note I came across about this pilgrimage was that he became the first caliph to have ice from the mountains of Iran delivered to him in Mecca, so his drinks stayed nice and cool. The next year, we hear about larger investments in the area, of pools, fountains, and mansions being built all over Mecca and Medina, and other greater projects lay in the future. Al-Mahdi would go on to expand holy sites in both cities considerably before the end of his reign. So, including his wars against the Byzantines, that's three elements of the Caliph's reign which our sources often depict as religiously inspired. Our fourth example, depressingly, is the one which gets praised the most by far, his persecution of those he deemed to be bad Muslims. It just goes to show that the best way to get on the good side of religious folks isn't to behave godly, but to oppress those they hate. The year after his pilgrimage in 778 was when we heard about al-Mahdi's execution of Abu Ubaidullah's son, so he may have already started his anti-Zanadiqa campaign by then. There are brief mentions of punishing crusades against Zanadiqa in Syria in 780 and in Iraq in 783, then again in 785. We're not told anything about their beliefs, and our sources don't have much to say about the whole thing, they just praise al-Mahdi for standing up for orthodoxy. It's a shame how little we find on the topic, 
as the caliph's intervention in religious affairs was certainly a new development. In my eyes, al-Mahdi did little to earn his reputation for piety. It's not that he was particularly sacrilegious or anything, but the material makes it clear that his priorities were poetry, women, and hunting. His behavior was a far cry from the last truly reverent caliph, Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, who spent his nights in prayer and lived so modestly that his relatives avoided dining at his table. By contrast, al-Mahdi lived large, and while Omar II literally broke down in tears when he thought of having to answer for the responsibility of governing the Ummah on Judgment Day, al-Mahdi had no problems delegating the whole thing to whomever, just as long as he could get back to his fun. And yet, we not only come across narrations that go out of their way to depict his actions and character as devout, but even some that make stuff up to really hammer the point in. One says that he invited all the kings of the East into Islam, and many of them converted after they were inspired by this paragon of holiness. Another goes that he had the Prophet's lectern measured so he could decree that none in the Caliphate were allowed to be higher. Exactly the kind of over-the-top pietistic narration about al-Mahdi that I have come to expect from our sources. So what's going on here? Why does al-Mahdi get such a strong reputation for piety when there seems to be so little behind it? I don't think it's all a matter of official propaganda, or our sources falling for his religious-sounding title. I believe it's just their way of saying that times were good under this caliph. Going through his reign, we come across no calamitous events during this golden age. He was also a pretty chilled leader, secure in his power and wealth. Sure, he delegated to others, but none of his advisors seem to have taken advantage of their position to amass fortunes or empower wicked men or anything like that. I believe our sources were trying to praise al-Mahdi and relay how popular and beloved he was by the people, and the only way they knew how to do that was to portray him as a devout Muslim. Greater caliphs had preceded him, but men like al-Mansur, Hisham, and Abdul Malik, for all their administrative genius, were not cherished by their contemporaries in the same way al-Mahdi was. They held a tight grip on power and taxed people up to their limits, actions which did wonders for the caliphate, but did not endear these leaders to their ummah, and so they never earned a similar reputation for piety. It is time to weave all these themes together chronologically before drawing our conclusions about al-Mahdi's reign. He became caliph in 775 at the age of 30, and like we noted earlier, he started by releasing prisoners and handing out lots of money. We're told that al-Mahdi took an oath to be more serious after he came to power, but that he only managed to stay away from parties and entertainment for a single year, which, I mean, is longer than I would have expected. In 776, he grew close to the newly released Yaqub ibn Dawood, who effectively took over matters of administration until his disgrace seven or eight years later. In 77, he may have divorced his cousin Raita, and I say may because only a few sources insist there was a divorce. The majority simply ignore these matters entirely. In his second or third year in charge, al-Mahdi removed Isa ibn Musa from the line of succession and had him replaced with al-Hadi, his son from al-Khaizuran. In 778, the caliph fell out with Abu Ubaidullah and began to get worked up about repeated defeats suffered against the Byzantines. In 79, more battles were lost, 
and in 780 he led that campaign with his son Harun against them. In 782, Harun led his own much more successful invasion and returned as Harun al-Rashid, second in line for the throne. In 783, the caliph imprisoned his advisor Yaqub ibn Dawood and handed affairs over to some other less important figure. 784 is remembered as a year of plague in our sources, and it seems like multitudes died of disease in Basra and Baghdad, two of the caliphate's largest Arab cities. Finally, in 785, al-Mahdi himself passed away at the age of 40. Either the result of a hunting accident in Masabadan, in southern Iran today, or, if you prefer a more scandalous account, by consuming a poisoned fig meant by one of his concubines for a rival she was jealous of. Either way, as my brother put it, he got the Cadillac of deaths. So there you have it, al-Mahdi's decade in charge. While he didn't get up to very much, he is credited with plenty in our sources who remember him fondly as a gentle and pious leader something more attributable to the prosperity of his father's golden age than anything he did himself. Despite his lack of concern with actual governance, there is plenty for us to consider about his tenure. The thing that jumped out at me the most was his reliance on advisors to an extent truly unseen prior to his rule. Even uninterested caliphs before him didn't have that option and their reigns were disastrous precisely because all decisions still fell to these indifferent leaders. Tracing matters back to his time in Rai sheds more light on how this whole thing developed. Remember, it was his father al-Mansur who had assigned Abu Ubaidullah to al-Mahdi when he sent him east. Al-Mahdi was only 15 at the time, way too young to be able to make any real decisions, and he was anyway disinclined towards administration. He grew used to having someone take care of business for him, and when he arrived at the round city, the well-oiled machine of bureaucracy could happily accommodate his absence as long as there was someone authorized to speak on his behalf. While the involved al-Mansur would never have considered relinquishing even an ounce of his authority, his supporting structure, meant to carry out his will rather than decide it, was well-equipped to do the same for his son enabling him to cruise control his way to a glorious reputation. It worked out for him, but he set a dangerous precedent. His successors won't be able to shut this Pandora's box of bureaucratic power, and some will even lose their influence to it entirely. Our other themes could also bear some more commentary. I used a light touch when it came to my assertions about Al-Khaizuran's power at court this episode, but it'll become clear just how much sway she really had during the coming reigns of her sons, but I'll leave that for next time and beyond. The wars against the Byzantines will also regain a higher profile within the Caliphate over the coming decades, a direct result of Harun's smashing success in 782, no doubt. It's also worth noting that there's plenty we didn't hear about. I left out a couple narrations about some chaos in Sindh and Kush, but there are vast swaths of the caliphate which don't come up at all during al-Mahdi's decade in charge. He just didn't care enough about his role to pay any attention to distant provinces, nor did he try to come up with a new vision for his ummah as a whole. Al-Mahdi came to the throne when the caliphate was at its peak. Things were great and people were happy. He didn't do much with all the power he was bequeathed, but he didn't deplete it either, 
at least not in any obvious or foolish ways. His reliance on advisors did embolden the bureaucracies his father had established to help him manage the state, but that was bound to happen as soon as someone less controlling than Al-Mansur was in charge. While I remain unimpressed by this middling caliph, who basically coasted off his father's hard work, I suppose things could have gone a lot worse. And since his contemporaries were happy, who am I to complain? Ultimately, he left the Ummah in about as good a state as he found it, and next time we'll see how his son Al-Hadi fared as his successor. Here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <laughs>